And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, it's great to be with you. I'm Dr. Dave Deval. I'm a professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. And I'm joined by my colleague Liz Kelly, award-winning writer and managing editor of Logos. We're published by the University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Today, we are really pleased to bring to you Dr. Daniel J. Mahoney, uh, the Distinguished Chair in Scholarship at uh, Assumption University in Worcester, Massachusetts. He is the author and editor of many books and articles, and he is the author of an article in Logos a few years back, The Humanitarian Subversion of Christianity, in which he introduced a very famous essay by the Hungarian writer Orel Kolnai, The Humanitarian Attitude. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Could you say a little bit about your background? You've been at Assumption since 1986. You're a political philosopher. Say a little bit about your academic background and your, particularly your Catholic faith. Yeah, well, I'm a cradle Catholic as the lingo goes. And uh, I uh, have always, I think, going way back to uh, high school, you know, I've always had a very serious interest in the intersection of religion, politics, literature, philosophy, history. And I would say that the sort of meeting place of all of those has remained at the center of my, uh, you know, intellectual considerations for an awful long time. Um, in, uh, as you said, I've written, published quite a few books and many articles and edited many collections, uh, um, I suppose my work sort of uh, has several foci. One is the aforementioned intersection of religion and politics, and I think that was most evident, or religion and political philosophy, in my last book, The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. That topic, of course, is directly related to uh, Kolnai's concerns, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I'm quite impressed that Kolnai articulated the danger of the collapse of uh, the Christian faith into a religion of humanity long before I think the uh, that process was uh, well advanced. Yeah. I've written extensively on statesmanship. Uh, in fact, I have a book uh, that's in progress, making steady progress, called The Statesman as Thinker, hmm. 10 Portness, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation, going back to Solon and Cicero and up through Churchill, De Gaulle, Václav Havel. Then I would add uh, the sort of uh, maybe the biggest focus of my work has been the intellectual and moral foundations of opposition to totalitarianism. Uh, And there in particular, my work on the great uh, Russian writer and moral witness and Nobel laureate Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I published uh, dozens of articles on uh, Solzhenitsyn, introduced some of his books, co-editor with uh, my uh, late uh, friend uh, Edward Erickson of the 
Solzhenitsyn reader, the most comprehensive and synoptic introduction to Solzhenitsyn's thought and writing. And my book, The Other Solzhenitsyn, will be coming out in paperback uh, from St. Augustine's Press in just a week or so. Well, most people have heard of Solzhenitsyn a little bit as one of those, one of those great figures who faced down the problems with totalitarianism. But Arel Kolnai, whose article you introduced, is somebody who's perhaps less familiar. Could you, could you say a little bit about that, that fascinating figure for us? Yeah, well, Kolnai really is a fascinating figure. He was born in 1900. Uh, he was born as Oral Stein and to a Jewish, secular, or agnostic family. As a young man, he had one of those precocious intellectual backgrounds, you know, where he was a uh, a Marxist and a progressive and all that through his high school years and college years. And uh, and uh, for a brief while, he was even part of Freud's psychoanalytic circle in Vienna. Uh, he was born in Budapest, but he broke with Freud very early on in his 20s. He saw, he saw early on the reductionism and dogmatism that informed not only Freud's thought and psychoanalysis as a whole, but the whole Freudian movement. And in 1926, 1926 is a really important year for Kolnai because it was the year he published his first critique of national socialism in the German press. And th those series of critiques would culminate in an important and even best-selling book called The War Against the West, where he exposed the racialism, vitalism, the profound hostility to Christian humanism and what's true in liberalism in national socialist theory and practice. Uh, still an important book, The War Against the West. 26 was also the year that uh, Earl Colney converted to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, it's interesting because uh, the influence there was G.K. Chesterton, who we wrote, read in English. And he said that Chesterton was not only vital for his religious conversion, uh, but it was vital for him learning English. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, Chesterton was a great inspiration for Colney. He called him the Fleet Street phenomenologist. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, Colney was a, a, a moral phenomenologist, sort of of the same school as Dietrich von Hildebrand, but much mm -hmm. more political. I think in focus that could Hildebrand. You, could you say a word about what 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 is phenomenology? It's a word that gets tossed around a lot. Well, the phenomenologists, especially the the sort of moral realist school of phenomenology, sometimes called the Munich school, associated for a while with Max Scheler, they were confident that um, that human reason could give us access to the structure of reality. Yeah. Cole Nye wrote a famous essay in the 50s, uh, in 1960, called The Sovereignty of the Object. And he liked to say, it's never a matter of my truth or your truth, as people rather <laughs> stupidly say today. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of the directedness of the human mind and heart to truth, yeah. mm -hmm. what the phenomenologists call intentionality. In other words, um, I say, I once said at a Kolnai conference in Budapest that Kolnai did on a higher intellectual level something like what C.S. Lewis did in some of his writings. He argued for the reality of moral consensus. Yeah. Uh, you know, he said most of, most of the evidence people give for relativism is, uh, you know, differences in folkways or traditions or social practices. But he says when it comes to 
moral judgment uh, really isn't a culture that privileges lying above truth-telling or cowardice above courage, et cetera, et cetera. So Colnai defended some, you know, what C.S. Lewis and the Abolition of Man calls the Tao. Uh, Colnai called that moral consensus. Yeah. And he thought it, it was real and it was an important evidence for this sovereignty of the object, of the directedness of the human mind toward truth. Uh, Colnai, however, was a little allergic, not to Thomas, but to uh, dogmatic Thomism. And there was a lot of that in the 40s and 50s. Uh, he was at Laval for a while after he fled Nazism, came to North America, and he said, I don't know what was worse, the uh, the Arctic cold or the uh, uh, or the dem dem yeah. dogmatic Thomism I had to confront. Yeah. So, in uh, Sovereignty of the Object, he says, um, Thomas need to recognize that they, they have modern allies. And he thought, whether it was Thomas Reed in England, you know, common sense, moral common sense philosophy, whether it was the moral realists among the phenomenologists, these were sort of modern approaches that shared with authentic scholasticism a confidence mm -hmm. that moral judgments were not subjectivist or arbitrary. Yeah. And uh, and Bakunai uh, combined his work as a moral philosopher with political philosophy, and uh, he um, he certainly defended democracies of political regimes a regime against communism, Nazism. But very early on, he well in the late thirties he turned to conservatism, a kind of idiosyncratic conservatism, because he thought. In a certain way, progressive democracy, as he called it, posed as fundamental, and that's tied to humanitarianism, posed yeah. a just as radical and maybe more deeply dangerous threat in the long run than open totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. I'll just mention, I published a book called, edited a book called Privilege and Liberty of Colonize Essays in Political Philosophy. It's still in print. And he's got an essay in there from 1950 called The Three Riders of the Apocalypse. Oh, boy. And, and the three riders of the apocalypse are Nazism, communism, and progressive democracy. Yeah. And he certainly saw humanitarian or progressive democracy as the more insidious threat, precisely because it appeals to people of goodwill mm -hmm. and it appeals to many Christians. It, it entails what uh, Vladimir Soloviev and the— uh, uh, and uh, uh, in his War Progress and uh, and the End of History called um, the falsification of the good. You know, it uses language that is appealing to decent people and to believers, but at the service of the subversion of the good. Well, and he 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 was onto that very early. Let let me just pull this back for one second and play the earnest uh, undergraduate coming onto campus and I'm assaulted with <laughs> terms, um, you know, social activism and, and so on and so forth. You know, humanitarianism, what, what could possibly be wrong with that? You also use the expression positivism. You know, humanitarianism has, humanitarianism has a lot of apostles. <laughs> and, you know, they would ask, how could this possibly be inadequate. Can you parse out a little bit some of the distinctions in terms here so that uh, uh, we know what you're talking about? Sure. I mean, uh, um, humanitarianism is actually an old word. It's been around for a long time, and it should not be 
mistaken or identified merely with do-goodery, you know, (laughs) or having a social conscience. Although there's a connection between the two. Mm -hmm. Colnai says, for example, in his attitude on his essay on the humanitarian versus the religious attitude for a prescient essay from 1943 is you have a lot of secularists and Christians sort of saying, well, the real uh, important and enduring core of Christianity, it's effectual truth to quote Machiavelli is uh, social welfare or yeah. uh, uh, concern for uh uh, what I call somewhat abstractly this worldly amelioration to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that's the sort of intrinsic core of the Christian proposition. So uh, humanitarianism on the uh, Colline goes very far. He says um, sometimes um, a humanitarian and a Christian might do the same deed out of different motives. But that's not the most important distinction. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 He says, for example, and I think this is the core of his critique of humanitarianism. Maybe we should best understand humanitarianism with Combs' phrase, the religion of humanity, because it shows that it's a self-conscious alternative to the Christian proposition. But um, uh, um, he says it that humanitarianism does not have, or humanitarians do not have any real appreciation of the moral seizure in the heart of man or in the mm. human soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that means the drama of good and evil. Humanitarian tends to be a vulgarized Rousseauanism in the sense that the source of evil is understood to be um, um, you know, a a faulty social and political system, right? And not and not the imperfection of human beings. But the other side of the coin this is equally important for Cole Knight. He says humanitarianism. Christians need to pay attention to this. Our co-religionists need to pay attention to this. They have a radically insufficient account of the, or they have no account or no understanding of what he calls the ontological nobility of human beings. Mm, So the the being of human beings. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our source in God. Yeah, yeah. And our ontological nobility, you know, we can talk about humility too much. Humility is a a virtue. Humility involves a proper understanding of our, uh, uh, the necessity for indebtedness and gratitude to, to God. But it also uh, goes hand in hand with an elevation of man. Magnanimity, ele- sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As virtue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you, know, magna- you know, Thomas famously claims that magnanimity and humility are only apparently in contradiction. Of course, at a human level, if you're convinced that you're uh, a gra- have, have greatness of spirit, the, the temptation is always to succumb to self-sufficiency and deny the source of that greatness yeah. of spirit. But, but nonetheless... The other side of Colnay's critique of humanitarianism was that the humanitarian worldview, uh, it was naive and utopian about the sources of evil and injustice, uh, and therefore gave rise to political and human projects that could cause um, disastrous, would have disastrous human effects. Yeah. N- new utopian tyrannies or scientific tyrannies. But on the other side of it was a complete denial of human dignity because human beings were lowered to their felt needs. 
and uh, and uh, that uh, ontological nobility uh, really disappears. And uh, and so a kind of sentimental attachment to suffering humanity replaces mm-hmm. a robust affirmation of human dignity. Yeah. So those are those are all re- really very real things. And um, but you know, I, again, I I think Colmai certainly saw this that a lot of churchmen, people within the churches we're more and more conflating our religion with this humanitarian religion of humanity. They simply don't see the difference. Have you ever read something about the Catholic faith or a topic by a great writer or theologian or philosopher, and you wish that you could personally ask them about something they'd said or how they got to their conclusion? We experience this at the Logos Journal daily, And while we have the opportunity to learn more from that person, it's not a conversation that only a few people should be able to have. We think a lot of you would be interested in knowing and learning more. The Logos Journal and our St. Thomas Catholic Studies friends and supporters need your help to do this. It takes a good deal of effort to get this access and to produce a podcast that is meaningful and helpful to you. We hope that you'll go to our podcast website patreon.com backslash deep down things to become a monthly subscriber for as little as five dollars a month you can be a podcast patron and in return get access to some really great bonus content like online access to the journal articles we discuss and additional spiritual reflections and bonus episodes offered by father byron hagan and father bryce evans great friends of logos and priests in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. And if you're a patron to the podcast, you get the ability to comment on the episodes and you can interact directly with us, our guests, and other podcast contributors. Definitely check it out to receive access to some of the best Catholic intellects currently thinking about deep down things. That's www.patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's one word, no spaces, deep down things. It's, uh, it's, it's insufficient, this sort of humanitarian orientation. And one of, the, one of the questions I have is, you know, Cole and I clearly saw not only, not only Western society, but, but the, as you point out here, the church and many Christians sort of falling into this sort of sentimental mm-hmm. uh, view of, of life. And I always think of Flannery O'Connor's famous line that, you know, sentimentality leads to the gas chambers. And Coli saw that as a real possibility that people would inevitably get tired of the sort of the thin gruel of humanitarianism. But it, things could go one of two directions. They could go back to real religion and to Christian faith, or they could turn to, as you say, different forms of tyranny. Was, was there any sort of optimism on Colnai's part about us turning back? in uh, formerly uh, Christian places? Well, optimism, no, because... Hope? the, the <laughs> Theological uh, hope, hope yeah. perhaps? I, yeah. mean, I, mean, I mean, to begin with, uh, Colmai knew that, again, he's writing this essay in 43. He died in 73. So he knew that there were still powerful residues of the older mode of thinking. So humanitarianism coexisted with at least, you know, something like a real presence of uh, 
uh, uh, not simply a residual one of Christianity in the in public life and in human hearts. So that that of course meant that um, the older ways of articulating what he called moral cognition, you know, were uh, were still available to human beings, yeah. but they were increasingly being undermined by this new orthodoxy or this displacement for traditional religious attitudes. But I think anyone who believes in um, something like a structure of reality or an order of things or human nature can't be a pessimist altogether because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, look, uh, these these faulty doctrines or what uh, Eric Vogelin liked to call the imposition of a second reality on the real world, they can do immense damage to the bodies and souls of human beings. You know, people can be mutilated, mutilated at the societal level, political level, the individual level by lies. Yeah. Uh, so, sure. they can go, and it can go on for a long time and do great damage. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it really, in the end, cannot build something that is human, humanly satisfying, and that is, in the long run, politically efficacious. I think we saw that with communist totalitarianism, but. I think if Cole and I were around, say, yeah, communism fell, but we still don't know why. We haven't are thinking about uh, why totalitarianism, communist totalitarianism in particular, was contranatorum, the ways in against which nature, it was. Against nature, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, against nature, the way in which it was, you know, mendacious, lying to its core, the way it, uh, you know, the way it, they, you know, it, it, it didn't know, you know, John Paul II used to, like to cite Pascal, the John Paul II, the Pope from 1978 to 2005, for you, you younger people. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, uh, uh, he liked to say that, you know, Christianity knew the truth. It had an, a specific expertise. I think Paul VI said it first, uh, that it knew the truth about man. Yeah. I, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is that truth about man that the church knows uh, is also a truth that the the churches and churchmen, theologians, Catholic laymen, and others, and not just Catholics, but we saw this pattern much earlier among liberal Protestants. Um, it's um, we we don't proclaim that truth and uh, and uh, and with, with the same self confidence or knowledge or mm-hmm. energy mm-hmm. as we could, because we strangely identify. Um, what's specific about Christianity with um, doctrines and approaches and practices that are, in fact, anti-Christian. Yeah. Sure. And uh, and so um, the idea that you can remake human nature at will, the idea that, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't think it's helpful, for example. I know the official magisterium does it from time to time, but I think talk about social sin is deeply problematic. I think it's uh, it 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 really contributes to this misunderstanding yeah. that mm-hmm. that um, evil comes from the outside, and uh, you know uh, I suppose there's nothing wrong with the term social justice if properly understood, but uh, I've often wondered what the adjective social adds to justice. <laughs> right, that's right. still a great great question. And you know when people like uh, 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 what's his name, Teparelli, Deligio, and these others in the uh, 19th century use yeah. social justice, they had a very specific um, 
idea in mind that was linked to what the church later articulated as the doctrine of subsidiarity, decentralist, yeah. opposed to uh, a, the state usurping the responsibilities of locales and families and, and all that. And now social justice really means something like concerted efforts to promote something like socialism or at least right. mm-hmm. a collapse uh, equity is more and more and more falsely associated with radical and dogmatic egalitarianism. And that's that's very huma- that's very humanitarian. But I think the drift in broadly Christian social reflection has been in that same direction. And again, I think deep down that means the church has lost or the churches have lost confidence in their own wisdom. Yeah and are relying more and more on currents of thought that um, are not, uh, not, not finally in accord with a Christian anthropology or a Christian vision mm-hmm. of the civic common good. Did, uh, did Kolnai have a kind of program? I mean, his, his article is about, you know, this humanitarian attitude and what happens to it. Did he have a kind of plan? I mean, is it You've identified we need to actually preach the specifics of the faith and not simply the sort of the the social aspects of it. Some people like Rod Dreher, a contemporary journalist, seems to advocate a kind of, you know, limited with, yeah, pull out, a withdrawal. (laughs) Um, Did Cole and I have a kind of vision? Are we supposed to head back to the catacombs? Are we supposed to take over a small country and establish it as an outpost of real religion? (laughs) No, 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 no. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Colbert was a Central European, and uh, he once wrote an article in the mid-40s about sort of imagining a future for the Danubian countries, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, kind of uh, not a restoration of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but sort of the possibility of – he always believed in a Reichstag, a, law, a rule of law state. That's German for rule of law state. Uh, he um, he thought there were, you know, there was great truth in what he called high liberalism, you know, the yeah. religious and civil liberties that uh, belong to a rule of law state. But he also thought conservatism in the sense of of seeing the intrinsic value of goods that had been passed on to us by, uh, you know, Christian and classical civilization. That had to be part of any. Uh, any workable social and political arrangement. And I think his fear was this sentimentalized, uh, quasi-atheistic, humanitarian, he liked to say, imitinistic, me as opposed to transcendental, you know, stuff limited to the uh, horizontally to this world, and yeah. to the problems of the world. He thought that that emphasis, he had a great phrase he liked to use, he called it misplaced emphasis. Sometimes these ideas have their place, you know, right. as you know, within limits. But when you have a misplaced emphasis and it becomes the whole thing, you know, Christians want to improve the world, but we fundamentally don't believe in uh, that human nature and society can be changed because of sin, but also because um, all human efforts are imperfect and under the judgment of God. But when when um when when these things get emphasized in such a emphatically one-sided way you end up creating something very new you know and i think from colnai i think what colnai would look at progressivist christianity or 
you know, the social justice emphasis or theology of liberation. And he would say, this is, you know, this is something, but it's, <laughs> it's not really Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, anyway, he would do that not in the name so much of conservative politics, but although there was an element of that in his thinking, but mainly in the name of um, a sort of understanding of the true nature and even radicality of the, uh, the, the Catholic faith and the Christian religion, that the, the humanitarians uh, make Catholicism uninteresting. They make it just a reflection of what, you know, you know sort of the, do, the, the dominant currents of right. what the intellectual community already believes. Some people like uh, Bishop Robert Barron call this, you know, in, in the context of religion, beige Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beige, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What's the connection then uh, between all of this and the death of culture? I mean, Colnai was writing a lot in the article. He was making this definite connection between a rise in irreligiosity and the death of culture. Can you talk a little bit more about that connection? Sure. So I've got to say that culture is one of those terribly ill-defined words, you know? You know, its origin was the cultivation of the land, and some classical authors, Cicero and others, adopted it to refer to the cultivation of character and the mind and the soul. And of course, you know, a high modernist like T.S. Eliot, uh, notes on the definition of culture, understood culture to mean high culture, you know? Yeah. They meant uh, you classical know, music and yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Leo Strauss, in one of his essays, says now he was writing in 1960 or 61. He said, "Now uh, culture has become so democratized, we have the drug culture. That was before right, sure. the rock culture, and the you know. <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna use culture in the um, the elevated sense to mean the cultivation of uh, the characters, the hearts, the souls of human beings, and, and we can give a, a special place to the arts." literature, music, in uh, educating human sensibility, elevating human hearts and minds towards something nobler than what uh, Pascal called licking the earth. And, uh, <laughs> right. yeah, don't you love that phrase? I've used <laughs> that in fantastic. class a few times. And the, stu- the students sort of look at you and like, I have some vague idea what Pascal was talking <laughs> <Right>. about. <laughs> well, unfortunately, performance artists are literally doing that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you know, you right. Oh, they are. Yeah, I always. remember that woman from California who was funded by the NEH, who, NEA, yeah. who, uh, who uh, put chocolate yeah, right. all over her body and then started eating it. This yeah. was this was, well <laughs> when 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 high culture is replaced by self-expression self-expression you know yeah yeah uh, uh then uh, there is uh there's a, a quick race to the bottom yeah no i think a call my thought that whenever man this is a phrase i remember from one of his essays whenever man or humanity humankind becomes its own paramount theme Mm-hmm. Then you have a drying up of the vitality of society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, one of his expressions, the self-deification of man. And that doesn't have to be some open project for crowning man, the king of the universe. But almost all late modern currents of thought somehow see humanity as uh, its own paramount theme. You know, yeah. it's not beholden. It's not we don't recognize liberty under God or even on liberty under the law in the sense of the moral law. And so he thought this terribly impoverished 
human beings and even the human will. On one level, the willfulness of man needs to be subordinated to something higher to be to give rise to yeah. uh, things that are worthy of our ontological nobility, you know, to our dignity as human beings. But on the other hand, um, you know, if we don't uh, if we don't acknowledge something higher, it leads to what Colmai called self enslavement, and uh, and it meant that one of his concerns, for example, was that a humanitarian ethos. Yes. Everyone knows that non-believers can be kind and visit Uncle Joe on the holidays and, uh, you know, <laughs> give money to the Salvation Army. And, uh, but that means nothing because Comey thought humanitarianism impaired moral cognition and mores because um, if man is his own paramount theme, if there's not, no, uh, there's no sovereignty of the object, if there's no directness of the mind and heart to truth, then um, um, whenever things become difficult, unpleasant, uh, uh, people are going to flee, you know? And so um, you really need some notion of the higher or the good or the full needs of the human soul that says, you know, the pain of moral self-examination or conscience, the pain of doing one's duty. It's not always uh, painful, but it can be painful. You know, the, you might say the humanitarian default position is always to identify the good with the pleasant. Mm -hmm. and, and that makes culture impossible because it effaces or erases any meaningful distinction between the high and the low. And therefore, as Colmai says, all human needs are equal. And uh, my students, also, I remember saying about 15 years, I'm dating myself. I said to my students, well, you really do know that 500 years from now, we'll, we, if civilization survives, we'll probably be reading Shakespeare, but we won't be listening to Snoop Dogg. Right. And, <laughs> and, you know, I really had a revolt in the class. And I think, you know, deep down they knew Snoop Dogg didn't have staying <laughs> power. <laughs> but what, what was unacceptable was a formal proclamation. That reason, you know, or or even aesthetic judgment could make, uh, you know, a a, a, a non-subjectivist judgment that you know Shakespeare will endure and uh, Snoop Snoop Dogg is trivial and, yeah. and mm -hmm. maybe maybe more than trivial. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah. So I think culture really depends upon you know the survival of the aspiration to protect what uh, Matthew Arnold called the best that's been thought and said. It really depends on uh, a certain understanding of the human person as yeah. person. Colmai mm -hmm. sometimes called himself a personalist, and by that he meant, you know, I think that human beings are not just individuals undifferentiated from other living things, but we're persons who have a specific directedness of heart and mind to truth and who have a moral cognition that can, that can provide and moral agency that can provide for uh, provide powerful guidance for how we ought to live in the world. And, that, uh, yeah. well, you know, without any of that, we're, there is no hope. Well, that's a great point. We're about to end here, but we know that uh, without that, there is no hope. But, but with an understanding of the logos and the human person, there is hope. Dan, it, you've mentioned uh, one collection of essays by Aurel Colnai. 
uh, Privilege and Liberty and other essays. Uh, are there other works of Kolnai that are available so that we can include them on the show notes? Yes, there's a wonderful volume. I believe it was in, in print uh, in the 70s, edited by uh, Bernard Williams and David Wiggins, called Ethics, Value, and Reality. And that mm-hmm. is Kolnai's very best collection of essays in moral philosophy. It's where he takes on the fact-value distinction. He takes on subjectivism, relativism. He has essays uh, criticizing Heidegger and Sartre for their uh, for their existentialist denial of uh, human nature and truth. Yeah. Uh, that's a great, great collection. Uh, stuff on classical philosophy. That aforementioned essay, The Sovereignty of the Object, which probably that of the moral consensus, I think, would be the two essays that sort of engage thoughtful Catholic uh, readers would want to read, you know, why there is powerful uh, evidence for uh, the existence of a, a moral consensus that is normative, that ought to, we ought to take our bearings from, and also why um, uh, the, the, uh, the claim that uh, knowledge is subjectivistic is, uh, you know, collapses in and of itself, that the uh, the sovereignty of the object is uh, not only the stated goal of true philosophy, but it's the this it's the way every you know serious human person has to live if they are to take their humanity seriously. There's also another collection by Graham McAleer uh, that has nihilism and values in the title. Uh, that essay ends with a great uh, critique of situation ethics from 1969. Uh, you can look that up, but it's Graham yeah. McAleer. And um, uh, it's um, that's a that's a splendid that essay, for example, that volume example, for example, has a 1933 essay by Colney where he argues for the intrinsic connection between Martin Heidegger's uh, preference for Nazism and his philosophy. Yeah. You know, that all became a, a big deal in intellectual disputes in the 70s and 80s. But Colney, right from the beginning, saw that Heidegger's uh, mystagoguery and all his philosophical abstractions were uh, made possible a kind of primacy of of uh, commitment divorced from truth that um, had a real and abiding connection with the madness of National Socialism. So that's a good place to start. Those all right. Three. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things, a partnership between Logos Journal and the Friends at St. Thomas Catholic Studies. I'm Dave Devil with Liz Kelly, and we've been talking to Daniel J. Mahoney, Distinguished Chair in Scholarship at Assumption University. We hope you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deepdownthings. That's one word, no spaces, Deep Down Things, to become a patron of the show and continue the conversation.